This morning's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible or uh, your worship folder, you're going to have to have that in front of you because we're going to be working through Revelation 21, 1 through 6 this morning. Now, I've been surprised that we are so quickly knee-deep in the holiday season, right? I mean, it seems like it just came up on us, and, and the holidays are blissful. Uh, they're the most wonderful time of the year, right? Or at least that's what Hallmark movies would have us believe. Uh, but we know that although they are wonderful, it's not the full story. In fact, blissful as they are, the holidays can also be painful, uh, because it's in the holiday seasons around Christmas time that we realize uh, the family that we don't have anymore, the people who are not around the table with us this year. And for some of us, we realize, uh, you might realize the people, the family that you do have this year, and that might be the troubling part. Um, but the holiday season has this incredible way of, of bringing us into this flurry of anxiety before Christmas. And then kind of this letdown of unmet unmet expectations after Christmas. Netflix just released uh, an infographic with the data of streaming and whatnot for the year. And and they said uh, that the most Netflix binged day of the year was January 1st, 2017. And, And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking it's because people have just gotten over the the hype of the holidays, and the only way that they can just kind of crash, check out, and escape is by binging Netflix. And so we realize that there's something about this time of year that makes us conscientious of our disappointments. It makes us uh, realize that we're troubled by our failed commitments, that that we're remembering painful memories, Happy holidays, right? I mean, this is, this is the reality that comes forth. But there's good news in this. Because what, what Christmas does, what the holiday season does, is it kind of, it bears our longings before us. It reveals to us that we have deep desires. And I want to submit to you that the deepest desire of every single person in this room and in this world is to experience refreshment from the presence of God. 
Now, if you've been with us, you know that over the last few weeks, we've been tracing God's commitment to be present with his people throughout the story of Scripture. And in that story, we saw that God began in the Garden of Eden, and he was present with humanity there. But because of our first parents, Adam and Eve's rejection of God, they were exiled from Eden, cast out from the presence of God. And so we see uh, that this exile, this curse, is pervasive. We experience it all over the place. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, puts it like this. We all long for Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. We feel that. We feel that we're soaked with the sense of exile. And the Christmas season just has this uncanny way of kind of bringing that to our awareness. But this longing to live in harmony, our our existential awareness that things are not right in our relationships with the creation and with one another and with ourselves and, and most importantly with God, this existential awareness that we have, this sense of our exile is brought to light in a season that's dedicated to longing. And so what we're going to look at in in Revelation 21 is how those longings are legitimate. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. I think Lewis is right. I think the the longings that we all experience is really for the restoration and renewal that only the presence of God can bring. And so as we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see our future reimagined. Then we're going to see our present realigned. And finally, our past remembered. Our future reimagined our present realigned, and our past remembered. The first point's going to be considerably longer than the other two. So if, if we're getting to the end of the first point, you're thinking, this is going to be an hour, right? Just bear with me. That's the, that's the structure. Our future reimagined. Now, we all live every day with our imaginations stocked with images of the future. Have you ever noticed that if you're not focusing your mind on something, the default is towards what's to come? You start thinking, uh, even when you're not paying attention unconsciously, you just start thinking about what's, what's ahead of you. And this is because human beings, as, as one philosopher put it, are existential sharks. We have this need to always be moving. We must be moving in the direction of our vision of the future. And so our minds are constantly trained to reimagine, to think about, to contemplate what's to come. And what I want to do is I want to let our our imaginations be soaked and stocked with images from the scriptures because I can promise you whatever we might envision is it pales in comparison to what God has shown us in the scriptures. And so I remember when I think about, when I think about heaven and, and kind of the, the typical way that people imagine what, what heaven's going to be like, I think about a movie that I watched uh, when I was a child. 
Do y'all remember the, the movie Casper the Friendly Ghost? Not the cartoon, but the, the kind of like real life version with real life people. Uh, not real life ghosts, but real life people. And, and in this version, there's this scene when Casper is serving his cousins. I don't know what they were. These, these other three ghosts, he was serving them a, a meal. And as they're sitting there, they're eating and it's just going in one end and it's just falling on the floor beneath them. And I think, frankly, that this is often uh, similar to the conception that we have of heaven. That we're going to be these ghastly spirit creatures just floating around in this cloudy, ethereal utopia somewhere. And I, I want to disabuse you of that vision of heaven through the scriptures this morning. And so when we look at the biblical depiction of heaven, it's far more rich and far more desirable than Casper the Friendly Ghost. So if you would look with me at Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, it says this. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Real quick, can we agree that the person who's sitting on the throne is usually in charge? Right? I mean, nobody walks into the courts of a king and bows the knee to the jester. Right? It's, it's the one on the throne that has all authority and all power to actually get things done. And, and what is the task here? The renewal of all things. That is the business that God is about. The one seated on the throne is bringing about the renewal of all things. And it's because of our sin that we experience that sense of exile, but that we also experience a a fragmentation, a splintering, a disintegration of everything in our lives. And so God's renewal of all things, his making all things new is comprehensive. It's this reverse of the curse as far as the curse is found. And so I want to show you that in in our four key relationships, our four key relationships, God is renewing all things. These relationships are how we experience a, a, the curse of fracture in our relationship with creation itself, with the world that we live in, with one another, with ourselves, and finally with God. And so let's look at how God is bringing a renewal, a vivid picture in the scriptures of how God is restoring all of those relationships. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me, but I'm going to be reading aloud some scriptures from the book of Isaiah which is where most of Revelation is, is just kind of drawing constantly from the book of Isaiah. God restores creation. This is the first thing. God restores creation. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses six through nine, it says this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Pause. So these animals, they hang out now as it is, right? But it doesn't end well for one of them. But this vision of the new creation is, is going to change that. Okay, here we go. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full 
of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, my wife, Alana, when we go for runs together, she often laughs at me because what happens is uh, while we're running, if I see a stick on the ground that has even the slightest serpentine character to it, I literally, I, not literally, I jump out of my shoes and I just run like Usain Bolt because I, I despise snakes. I, I'm terrified of them in a way. And, and what the vivid picture that Isaiah is painting for us is that this restoration of, of creation with humanity is so rich that toddlers will be playing whack-a-mole with cobras. That's what the text said. That's the kind of vivid picture, the, the kind of image that I want your imagination to be stocked with when you think of the future. Imagine no more destruction from hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes, the creation, the earth, existing in perfect peace in the presence of God. The second thing I want us to see is how God restores us to one another. Now, if you just consider uh, the way that we relate to one another, the alienation that we experience in our relationships with one another, there's bitterness and strife, there's jealousy and anger, there's war and oppression, But Isaiah, again, in chapter 2, verse 4, puts this renewal, this restoration like this. He says, The nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Just consider how many hours in the history of humanity have been spent learning, training how to kill other humans. They will learn war no more. Just consider, imagine, I mean, this picture that we have here is that these weapons of war are being recast and remolded into tools of trade so that we use our creativity and our ingenuity rather than using it to spill blood into the soil We're using it to cultivate life out of the soil. This is the restoration that God's going to bring in our relationships with one another. When God exists, when God God exists and manifests his presence with his people on earth, there's going to be no more social media tirades. There's going to be no more interpersonal conflicts. There's going to be no more systemic injustice. There's going to be no more hate crimes. There's going to be no more hashtag me too because the using and abusing of human beings will be no more because God is bringing renewal and restoration as far as the curse is found. When God's perfect presence comes to earth, it's going to bring total restoration to the way that we relate to one another. Third, God restores us to ourselves. God restores us to ourselves. We all experience this, whether we're aware of it or not, but, but we experience a sense of disintegration even within our own selves. Whether it's psychological dysfunction or bodily breakdown, it might be disease, it might be atrophy, it might be death, but our bodies are not trending towards beauty and health and strength. And so what what the scriptures teach us is that uh, this is not going to be the way it's going to always be. 
In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, this is part of our text for today, so you can, you can turn your attention there. It says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love... I love the Bible. I love it because oftentimes where I have initial confusion, when I kind of just press in, some of the richest insights come out. So as I was reading and studying this text, I was wondering, what's the difference between mourning and crying? I mean, I do both, and when I do both, they look and sound a lot alike. And, and I realized that throughout the story of Scripture, mourning is always grief over our own sin. And hear me, is it not your inability to stop sinning? Is that not the most grievous thing that you experience? Is it not the fact that you cannot break that addiction no matter how hard you've tried? Is it not the fact that you long to be less self-obsessed and more self-giving and yet you cannot? No more mourning over our own sin a total restoration, no more sadness because of our sin or the sins of others. No more crying, no more sadness because of the suffering that we experience. No more pain, no more bodily breakdown. No more aches, no more soreness, no more handicaps, no more dis-ease in our bodies at all. And finally, this all culminates with no more death. No more loss, only never-ending vitality when God comes. One of my favorite things about verse 4 is that the same king who's sitting on the throne is stooping down to wipe the tears from our eyes. I mean, what majesty, what incredible meekness. The grandeur and humility of God is unfathomable. And so when God comes, our perfected bodies, our perfected souls will be unhindered and we will experience the presence of God forever. The fourth area is that God restores us to himself. He restores us to himself. Because of sin, we all live somewhat estranged from God. We get cut off by our own sin, by our own will from the source of all light and love, and life. And we experience this. And so in Isaiah chapter 62, it it shows this kind of reverse of the curse. It says this, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here it is, the culmination of all things. God's presence with God's people in God's place, the new heavens and new earth. This is what everything has been building for. 
All things are working towards this end. And the only language that could be found to describe the the intimacy and the romance of the restoration of God and humanity is marriage. And so we see in verse 2 of our text this morning, it says this, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. By the way, throughout Revelation, New Jerusalem is God's beautified people. Okay? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The people that God himself has prepared and beautified in order to walk her down the aisle and present her to his son, Jesus, in holy matrimony. This is the the end of all history, is the holy wedding of Jesus with his bride, the church. Marital language was the only language that could be found that that gave enough richness and intimacy and romance to what's to come. And so we see that the restoration of God's presence with God's people in God's place is the hope, the future that we are reimagining. Now you might be thinking, okay, so that's there and then, but what about here and now? Because we have no idea how far off that is. We pray, come Lord Jesus. We prayed it today. But we don't know how long that's going to be. And so what does the here and now look like in light of the future reimagined? Well, I'm reminded because my anniversary is coming up this upcoming week of when Alana and I were at our wedding reception. And we did the whole walk thing where people throwing rice and uh, sparklers and all that. And, And we get into my truck. And when we get into my truck, we drive away, and, and there's cans with strings, and they're making noise and whatnot. And, and as I kind of round the corner, I realize, you know what, i got to deal with these cans, because I can't drive down I-4 uh, with cans jangling the whole way. <laughs> so I pull over, and I'm off to the side of the road, and I'm, and I'm pulling these cans off. And, and our bridal party did a fantastic job, because it was like chains with like Campbell's chunky soup cans or something like that. I mean, it was just heavy duty on the back of my truck. And so I'm yanking and pulling and, tuck, and I'm having a hard time. And I eventually slice my finger on the rim of one of the cans. So now I'm bleeding. And guess what? That light and momentary affliction was nothing compared to the glory that was being revealed on my honeymoon. And so I didn't care A cut on the finger was nothing compared to the fact that I was going to spend the next week with my new bride. And this is what it looks like to have our present realigned with our reimagined future. And so when we we consider what it's like to have our present realigned with our reimagined future, I want you to have one word in mind. And that word is that we are called to be a foretaste. We're called to be a foretaste. Now, full disclosure, I will never outgrow the desire to lick the brownie batter or the cookie dough out of the bowl after Alana's done making cookies. Uh, Like, I feel bad for my kids one day because they're going to want it. And I'm going to say, listen, babe, this isn't for you. There's raw eggs in there. It's going to be bad. You can't have this. And I'm going to take the bowl and I'm going to do it myself. It's just, I'm I'm full disclosure. It's the way it's going to be. Because there's something about when Alana starts baking cookies, I can smell the aroma, and the first thing I want to do is get a foretaste of what's to come. And there's something about getting a foretaste that just, it stokes this longing in you for when that oven timer's done and we get to taste the full thing. 
And so similarly, we, the church, the people of God, get to exist as an appetizer of the new creation, a foretaste of what's to come. So what does that look like? Well, it starts with having durable hope among the hopeless world. Durable hope among the hopeless world. And and what I don't mean is passive resignation. What I don't mean is some sort of happy, clappy enthusiasm. I mean a deep and sturdy, stare reality in the face kind of hope. I mean, we should be the most realistic of all human beings because we know that this is not the way things are supposed to be. When we see the brokenness and the suffering in our world, we ought to be intensely disturbed by it. Because not only do we know this is not the way it's supposed to be, we know this is not the way it will always be. And so we exist as a foretaste with durable hope. Now practically, what does that look like? What does it actually look like for us to live as a foretaste? First, it means that we lament. We cry out to the one who's on the throne, the one who has promised to make all things new, and we ask him to speed it up a little bit. When we see the sin and the suffering and the sorrow of our world, we cry out to God, and by doing that, we're bearing witness that this is not the way it's supposed to be, nor is it the way that it will always be. The second thing we do is we labor. We work hard to alleviate pain. We care enough about God's suffering image bearers that we work hard to alleviate their pain because we know the day is coming when pain will be no more. And so our labor is not in vain. Third, we work to wipe the tears from the eyes of the suffering, trusting, confident that that one day God will do the very same thing with his very own finger. Listen, one day, Kleenex will be no more because the former things will have passed away. And so we we labor and it's not in vain because we know that we're doing something that will one day culminate in perfection. Fourth, we work against systemic oppression. We work against racial and economic injustice. We work against sexual deviancy because we know that one day these things will be no more. And so our labor is not in vain. Fifth and finally, we seek to repent and put to death our own sin, our own selfishness, our own bitterness, our own anger, our own lack of love. We put those things to death because one, one day we know that we will be perfected and that even right now God is beautifying us into the kind of people that will one day glisten with his goodness. And so our labor is not in vain. There's a professor of urban missions. uh, He was a professor of urban missions named Harvey Kahn. And he, he uses this analogy that the church is like a model home. And this is what he says. Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing on a tract of earth's land, purchased with his blood. He has erected a model home as an exhibit of what will eventually fill the whole world. God intends the church to be that model home. We're his demonstration community. We are to put the rule of Christ on display, showing the unbelieving world what human life and community can look like with God at the center. 
this church, New City, is a model home in Orlando of what will one day be. That's our calling. And even, even now as I say that, I know some of you have such a hard time even lifting your head because of what you're going through to see the vision that's to come. Some of you are in a place where you realize being a foretaste requires boldness and confidence, and yet you're on the verge of despair and feeling like giving up. And so this is why we must look at our past remembered. Now, Laura Hillenbrand has a book uh, called Unbroken, far better than Angelina Jolie's rendition of it. And in this book, she describes the survival story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. It's incredible. I mean, he's punching sharks in the face in the middle of the Pacific. He's surviving POW camps. Like, just an amazing story. But one day, he's in a, in a war camp in, in a Japanese territory. And as he's there, they hear the sound of a plane about to fly overhead. And, and they kind of run out, but they only ever heard Japanese planes at this point or planes that are dropping bombs. And so as they're out there, they're kind of fearful, but they're, they're so anxious to see what this is. And, and they look up and they see a plane model that they have never heard of before. But one of the new prisoners had seen before he was captured that this is a new American model of plane. And so they knew this wasn't the Japanese, this was the Americans. And they knew what that meant was the war is over. Victory is imminent at this point. If the Americans are pressing this far into Japanese territory, then we have won. But hear me, they remained in that camp for weeks after that. In fact, Louis Zamperini, in, in that time period between when that plane flew over and when they were released, he endured 220 punches to his face, almost killing him because of a sadistic prison guard. But he had the confidence, he had the nerve to persist onward because he knew that victory was imminent. He knew the battle had already been won. And so similarly, as we turn our attention in this season to celebrate the birth of Jesus, God stepping into the mess of humanity as a man. As we celebrate this, we remember our past when you look at Jesus' life, he, he's sort of kicking off a revolution. Now, I don't think it's so much of a social revolution as it is a full reverse of the curse. Right? Everywhere he goes, he's, he's raising the dead, he's healing the blind, he's casting out demons, he's forgiving sins. Where Jesus goes, he can't help but tear off darkness wherever he finds it. But the problem is, is that the humans then and us humans now have darkness inside of ourselves. And so as we've been paying attention to the story of Scripture, how God dwelled in his temple with his people, what we realize is that in the temple there was this section called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, God's manifest presence was said to dwell. But the problem was is that nobody was allowed in there except for one man, one day of the year, on the day of atonement. And it was the high priest and he could go in there and he could make purification, a sacrifice to purify people from their sins. One man, one day out of the year, that was it. So there remains this impassable veil between the sinful people of God and the joyful presence of God. 
And this reminds me of when I was in, uh, when we were in Barcelona this summer. I got this incredible opportunity to tour this church building called the Sagrada Familia. And it's one of the most beautiful and ornate buildings in all of the world. Uh, designed by Anthony Gaudi and, and is incredible. And so I went and I actually had a tour and I showed up and this was supposed to be uh, a group tour and I showed up and I was the only one there. And so it was me and my tour guide, Carlos, and immediately I was just like, dude, I feel bad for this guy. Like I'm a history major and I'm a theology student. I have loads of questions. And so it became this private tour, which is me and Carlos. And, and I kept asking question after question after question. And, and quickly it became apparent to me. And, and he said, and I was just asking him, he's like, I'm, I'm actually an atheist. And I was asking, what's it like to lead people day in and day out through this religious temple of sorts and not really buy into any of this? And, and so we talked about that. And, and as we were going, we went around to the back of, of the building And the entire backside of the building is dedicated to the death of Jesus. And and Jesus is hanging on a cross, front and center, and the whole side of the building is gray and drab and dreary. Except for one place. Right above Jesus' head, you can't miss it, there's this brilliant mosaic of tiles that just flash with color given their gray setting. And I asked Carlos, I was like, hey, what is that about? And he told me, he's like, well, it has something to do with a torn veil and the Holy of Holies, but I don't really know. He actually said the Sanctum Sanctorum, which is the Latin way to say that. I just think it's so cool sounding. He said the Sanctum Sanctorum. He's like, I just really don't know what it means, but I was like, can I tell you? (laughs) Would you mind if I just kind of like let you know what it means? So I began to tell him about how the Holy of Holies was where the presence of God was with his people, but that sinful people had no access to it because of their their sinfulness. But, But that when Jesus died on the cross, the sky turned black. And as he cried out his last, this veil that separated God from humanity was torn from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom because God was reconciling man to himself. I explained this to him and I said, and now for those who trust in Jesus, you have unhindered access to the intimate enjoyment of God's presence. And Carlos said, man, what must I do to be saved? And I baptized him in the Mediterranean right there. It was amazing. No, that's not true. I wish. That'd be amazing, right? (laughs) But Carlos said, man, I never knew that. What an incredible story. And I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with him. It's an amazing story that when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. What he was saying was, I have done everything necessary to reconcile you back to God. I have dealt with your sins fully and finally. Now there's unhindered access for all who trust in me. But paradoxically, when Jesus says it is finished, he really kind of meant it has just begun. Look with me at verse six of our passage. And with this, we are close. Verse six says this, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done designates the accomplishment of what Jesus kicked off on the cross when he said, it is finished. 
See, even now, this very moment, the presence of God that was at one point confined to the Holy of Holies is spreading and filling the entire earth. And he's using you and me, the church, to accomplish this. And so one day we know that we'll hear the words, it is done because the presence of God, the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And it's because Jesus cried, it is finished, that now one day we know we will see it is done. Verse three says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Another way of putting that simple yet profound statement is this, mission accomplished. And so now Jesus, the risen Jesus, sits on his throne and he calls to us. He calls out to us, to the thirsty, I will give water, living water from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so whether you're near to Jesus or far from Jesus this morning, he's calling you to come and drink. Do you find yourself thirsty? Do you find yourself needing waters that can satisfy your longings? Jesus says, come to me and drink and have life. And he's calling you and he's calling me this morning to drink of his waters of living water, of living life. And with that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, you finished it. You've done all that is necessary for us to have the new heavens and the new earth as our reimagined future. I pray for all of us this morning that we would draw near to you to drink that we would turn from waters that never satisfy to trust in you who gives waters that do satisfy. And that we, your people, would become a foretaste of what's to come when the presence of God is with us perfectly. We pray these things trusting in your name, Jesus. Amen.